We are continuing in our study of Philippians. Today we're looking at chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, under the heading of the question, when will I be happy with others? And so give ear now as I read God's word. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is God's word. We've been looking in this series on Philippians on how to be happy. That's what we've been talking about. And this is a challenge for us today because for so many people, they have given up hope of ever being happy. Okay, there are a number of people who are convinced that happiness is a luxury that I have, have to face the fact I'm never going to experience. Some people have just given up. They don't think that they will ever be happy. Happiness is something they're going to have to live without. And these are folks who are being forced reluctantly, usually, to face a reality that they never thought would be reality. I think one of the main difficulties in trying to address this and trying to show people in the church and people who are outside of the church that happiness is possible is that you're fighting against all kinds of evidence and life experiences that keep us down. Right? The minute we say, I want you to be consistently, unshakably happy, so many of you are like, yeah, well, you don't know my life. You know, that just sounds like Bible speak. That sounds like, you know, Pollyanna. Um, and yet, what's interesting is that despite all the evidence that fights against happiness, that makes us think we can't have it, just about everybody pursues it. Right? We're all not, we're not done. We don't give up the pursuit. We continue to pursue it. No matter how dark life gets, in some way, everyone still is, is like squinting through the darkness, looking for some glimmer of hope. Somehow, maybe I can be happy. And we pursue happiness in all different kinds of ways. And so the question is, where are you looking for happiness? In relationship with others, that's what we're looking at in chapter 2 here. Where, where are you looking for happiness? How are you pursuing how to be happy with the other people in your life? There are a lot of people, without even realizing it, who choose to pursue happiness with others by complaining. Okay, they, they say, I'll be happy with others when I'm free to complain. Okay, what do I mean by that? Well, they've given up hope that others might make them happy, that the people in their lives might make them happy. And so they'll check out of marriages they check out of families, friendships. They build walls where they keep themselves from being touched by the folks around them. And then they find someone or some group of someones to whom they can complain, right? And 
it's like they're trying to squeeze happiness out of the complaining that they do, right? I mean, you understand this, right? I mean, this is in all of us, actually. Some of us do this more than others. Some people have given wholeheartedly into this. They look for someone they can gripe to, and they think, I mean, here's kind of the tragedy. They think that's the best that they can do. These are people who are looking at their lives and saying, you know what, I'm not going to be happy no matter what in these relationships with these people. And so my only hope for happiness is that at least I can find somebody who will hear me complain. Well, today Paul addresses two ways of being happy. Okay, he's, looking at, he's going to look at seeking happiness through complaining versus seeking happiness through experiencing God's work in your life. I mean, those are kind of the two things Paul's going to aim at. We're going to see this in three points. So if you want to take notes uh, in the bulletin, first point is we're going to see the chains of complaining. Okay, the chains of complaining. Secondly, working out the complaining heart. And then third, relationships that bring happiness, not complaint. Okay, and I'll give them back to you as we come up to them in the sermon. And so first, we're going to look at the chains of complaining. This is actually verses 14 through 16 in our passage. Paul says, do all things, verse 14, without grumbling or questioning. I found a great definition of this. Someone, a scholar said, this idea of grumbling, this is making remarks in a low tone of voice. That's pretty good, isn't it? It's, it's behind the scenes talk. Okay, that's what grumbling is. You're great images. And, and now, questioning, it doesn't mean to be unthinking. Okay, heaven forbid. God forbid that you should be unthinking. I think we should always be asking questions to better understand what we really believe, who God really is, what the Bible really says. But this is actually referring to, it's defiantly overthrowing authority in our lives. Okay, it's questioning with defiance, with a desire to overthrow authority. And so in a word, it's, it's complaining. Okay, we do this in all areas of our lives, but we're applying these, these truths to this area of relationships. I don't know how many of you have seen the movie Up, the Pixar movie, the animated movie. It's an amazing, fabulous, fabulous movie. The main character is this old man who grew bitter when his wife died early in their marriage. Okay, and they had all these hopes, all these dreams for what life was going to be like, and then she dies. And he spends his entire life growing inward, farther and farther inward, isolating himself from the world, and he justified his isolation by complaining. Okay? Complaining about everything, about people that are in the city, his neighbors. It's, it's interesting because you've got this, this amazingly picturesque old-style home that's smack dab in the middle of a city block. You know, so picture next door to the, you know, just, just north of us. You know, the, there'd be like this house with a little front yard and a, and a white picket fence. and I mean, that, that's him. That's his life. While the city and life is moving beyond him, he's isolated himself. Um, and he's complaining about the world, about the city. He's complaining about the people in the city and everything that's happening to him. And he's incredibly, incredibly bitter. This is where the road to complaining leads us. Okay? It's this amazing picture of the power of complaining and what it does to us. You know, and we think, like, why do we complain? We reviewed some of this in, in our prayer of confession. You know, why do we complain? Well, complaining is one way that it makes us look better by bringing other people down. Okay, complaining also, it's revenge. 
We exact revenge. We make people pay for stuff they've done to us by complaining to other people. Complaining is also backlash against us not having control. Okay, we want control. We don't have it, so we complain. And so it's almost an effort to control our circumstances. If we complain, if we complain then we can exercise certain amounts of control. Complaining is also a way that we're saying that we deserve better in our lives. Okay? This shouldn't be happening to me. We deserve something better. And it's interesting because complaining begins a cycle. Complaining is absolutely demoralizing. Okay? To complain is to construct a rain cloud over your entire life. That's what happens. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. This is what happens. When we complain, this is what we do. We end up walking around with this rain cloud. And it makes us unpleasant to be around. Worse than that, though, complaining is enslaving. It's enslaving. It puts us in this vicious cycle that spirals downward and inward until it completely controls us. It's just how it works. It's what happens to us. It's interesting. In verse 15, Paul speaks about uh, the crooked and twisted generation that the church lives in. This word twisted... Well, first of all, the crooked and twistedness comes from a generation that complains. Okay, that's what happens. How, how, how do we get this way? How do the problems? Well, it starts with complaining. It starts with grumbling and questioning. It, it starts with throwing off uh, good authority, throwing God off of the throne. But what's interesting about this word twisted is that you can also translate that word misled. Misled. And what's interesting about that is that it highlights the reality that most complaining, it's actually an effort to find happiness that's misguided. Again, people complain because they think that complaining will make them happy. Because we experience a measure of pleasure, right? When we complain about something, make somebody laugh because we complained about something, or, or we, you know, at least we got back at somebody because we complained about it. We experience a, you know, a moment of pleasure there, and we think that's going to make us happy. The problem is that we're being lied to. The idea that you'll be happy with others when you're free to complain is a lie. It doesn't bring happiness. What it does is it flushes you down the toilet, this vicious cycle that leaves you enslaved. And so what's interesting, going back, we talk about idols, you know, things that we sort of bow down to that aren't God. And control is a big idol for many of us. You know, we want control, and when we don't get it, we complain. I've already mentioned that. Well, when we complain, we're striving for more and more control. The problem is that once we get control of our lives, we end up with a life that's not worth controlling because of what we've done to it with our complaining. And the greatest image of this is the image that Paul uses. In verses 14, actually in verses 12 to 18, there's about six Old Testament images that Paul uses. I'm not going to go over all those images, but the primary one that underlines his command to not grumble or question is Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 5. Okay, Deuteronomy 32, 5. Listen to what this says. Deuteronomy 32, 5 says, Israel has dealt corruptly with God. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Paul's quoting this verse. He's quoting this verse to us. 
He's trying to get us, he's trying to make the point stick by using a graphic image. A life complaining is a life that's just like Israel living in the desert. Okay? Um, now, for us, this might not hit you right in the middle of the eyes, right? But for them, it would have. Because for them, their scriptures were, it was the Old Testament. And so for them, all they knew was the Hebrew scriptures. And so in the Old Testament, the greatest act of salvation in the whole Old Testament was Israel's exodus from Egypt. Okay, it was the exodus. It was their deliverance. This act of salvation where God proved that he was real. He proved that he was more powerful than any other nation on earth by defeating the most powerful nation. He overthrew the political power that kept Israel enslaved. He gave them their freedom, their independence, and he set them on a road to inherit the promised land. And this land was heaven on earth. Okay, it was heaven on earth where they could build a new life and they could all start over. That was the greatest picture of salvation in the whole Old Testament. The problem was that on the way through the desert from Egypt to, to the promised land, all the people ever did was grumble and complain. Their entire existence was filled with grumbling and complaining. And so what Paul is saying to us, when Paul says, do all things without grumbling or questioning, what Paul is saying here, he's warning us, he's saying, if you do that, you're being just like Israel, who stared all of God's blessings in the face and said, we don't want you. God, we don't want you. We want to go back to slavery in Egypt. That's what Paul's saying. And so he's warning us also that if we walk down that road, that road of complaining, it will lead to us suffering the same fate of that, that generation of Israel in the desert. What happened to them? Well, they came right up to the brink of the promised land and they weren't allowed to go in. They didn't inherit the blessings of the promised land. They didn't inherit heaven on earth because they had cut themselves off from God by their complaining. Okay, and that's how it works. When we complain, we're actually cutting ourselves off from God because we're saying, God, we don't want you. We're saying, God, we don't like you. We don't like what you're doing in our lives. And when you cut yourself off from God, you cut yourself off from all of his blessings. Israel died in the place where they complained. The same thing's true for us. If you spend your life complaining, you will die in the midst of your complaints. Now, if you're here in this place today, Christian or not, if you're enslaved to complaining, this is why we need Jesus. You know, this is why we confess our sins together every week. Because all of us need to be, we all need to deal with our hearts. We need to come to him. We need to confess both our complaining and then our need for control that fuels those complaints. So we need to confess our complaining and then all, all the stuff that produces our complaints. And the good news is that if you come, he'll forgive you. He has, he comes and forgives us. And so this means that we can be different. This means that we don't have to be just like the generation that died in the, in the desert. But we can be different. And this brings us to our second point. Our second point is, that, uh, is working out the complaining heart. 
working out the complaining heart. And this is verses uh, 12 and 13. Okay, our response to God isn't to live grumbling and questioning lies, but rather, verse 12, we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. This is what Paul says. This is his exhortation. Based on all that he has said so far, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What does this mean? Well, to put it most simply, it just means that you need to live as people who have been saved. Okay? Live as though you've been saved. And what have we been saved from? Well, we've been saved from the brokenness and from the deception of the world. Right? We've, been, we've, we've, we've had truth given to us so that we understand that complaining doesn't lead us down that road. It doesn't lead us to, to happiness. And so we're going to be saved from that, from the presence, from the power, from the penalty of sin. This is often the problem that non-Christians have with the church, right? People who claim that they are Christian, people who say that they follow Jesus, they know Jesus, but who don't seem to be living out their salvation, right? Who aren't working out their salvation. And in this, I think the world is right to criticize us. You know, is it possible for somebody to be freed in, in, a, in an exodus from sin, to be freed from the power of sin and the brokenness of life and have it make no difference in their lives? No, it's not. It's not possible. If you have been saved, it's not possible that, that nothing will change in your life. And so Paul is saying, work it out. Work it out. When you do this, we'll talk about how in a second, but when you do this, Paul says back in verse 15, he says, when you do this, you become blameless and innocent, children with God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And I just want to latch on to this idea of children of God. You know, Paul is saying when you are working out your salvation, that's when you are, you know, I think when he says children of God, he's saying you're like a chip off the old block. You know, parents have children that are born in their image. And so we look more like God. We look like we're part of his family when we work out our salvation. Okay, and this is what Paul is aiming at because reality is that he wants to put, God wants to put us on display to show that, gosh, the generation's been misled, that people are pursuing happiness in all kinds of wrong ways that are never going to help them, never going to fill them. They're not going to give them what they're looking for. And so Paul wants us to work out our salvation so that we can show that there's another way to live. To show there's another way to live. And briefly in verse 15, Paul says, the way that this happens, or verse 16, I'm sorry, is that we do this by holding fast to the word of life. You know, we shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. And so it's based on the scripture. It's based on holding on to God's word. By holding fast to it, that means understanding it, knowing it, living it out, finding yourself in here. What does this book say about you? What does this book say about your salvation? This is where you find what it means to be saved so that you'll know how to work it out. Okay, and so Paul's call to work out your salvation is to figure out how your salvation will impact your life. Okay, how your salvation will impact your life. So how does your salvation change you? In a sense, he's calling us to take responsibility for our lives. 
what is the difference it's going to make in your life? What difference should it make in your life? You need to answer that question. And then once you've done it individually, we need to be asking that question as a church. You know, what is salvation going to look like for us as a church in terms of how we treat one another, in terms of how we live in the city? Right? What, is the, what does salvation look like for us in the city? You know, I was thinking about all the, resi- all the residential buildings that are going up, right, that have been going up, and, and how many of them you know, are built and, and they're still vacant. You know, because the economy and, you know, because housing, you know, the price of housing are, 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 you know, are going down. And so you, we have all these buildings that are empty, you know, which seems wrong, doesn't it? I mean, you don't build a housing complex. You don't build a condominium complex. You don't build an apartment complex to leave it empty. And as I was thinking about that, I thought, you know what, that's kind of what Paul's aiming at here when he says work out your salvation. God is investing in you salvation itself. God is pouring into you power and hope and joy and happiness. And he wants you just to live it out. He doesn't want you to be an empty shell with happiness or salvation pasted on the outside with nothing inside. God doesn't just stamp saved across your forehead, but he actually pours salvation into your lives. He pours salvation into your heart, into your mind, into your emotions, into your affections, into everything about you. So that everything is transformed. And this then gets into the, the, into the how. How do we work out our salvation? You know, for a lot of people, they get uncomfortable with this verse because, you know, works. Are you saying we have to earn our salvation? I mean, is this something where God says, well, if you do enough, then I'll save you? No. No, we can't earn our salvation. The Bible says salvation is a gift. You can't do anything to earn a gift. It's a gift from God. And we see this just in the text. What is the first word of verse 12? It says, therefore, my beloved. Therefore means, based on what I've just said, work out your salvation. What has he just said? Well, he just talked about the amazing, glorious, and unbelievable work that Jesus did to save us. Okay, that's the reason why we're saved. We're not saved because of our work. We're saved because of Jesus' work. It's because of him and what he did. John the Baptist says this verse a little differently in Matthew 3.8. He says, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. So if you've confessed your sins and devoted yourself to God, then just live a life that shows it. Okay, that's what he's aiming at. And so one person this week, actually, I talked to said this, which sums this up really nicely. We do good works not to be saved, but because we are saved. And you got to get that right. Okay, a lot of, I mean, unfortunately, a lot of churches don't get that right. And they, and they put a burden on us that we just can't, we can't live under. You can't, you, if, if salvation is something to be earned, you can't do enough to earn it. Two reasons. Number one, you don't do enough good works. Number two, there's all this bad stuff that we're doing, right, that, that we got to deal with. And so this is why we say that salvation is gracious. It's grace. And so if you believe in Jesus... You're already saved. You're already free from the power of sin. You've already been set free from slavery to sin. So what Paul is saying here is just be who you are in Christ. Be who you are in Christ. Put your salvation into practice. Don't keep living as slaves because you're not a slave anymore. 
Now, verse 13 gets a little bit more specific in terms of how, how do we actually do this? How do we put it into practice? Well, we do it by the power of God. Um, somewhere, some, I'm not sure who said this, but somebody said, what God works in, we work out. Okay? So God works salvation into you. Look at verse 13. Verse 13, for, for, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so it's God who empowers both your doing and also your willing. Isn't that good? Because that's kind of, that covers it, doesn't it? Problem is we don't do the things we should do, but the bigger problem is that we don't want to do the things that we should do. And what God works into us is both the willing and the doing. God gives you a desire. God gives you a desire to live out your salvation. And I mean, just think about like right where you're sitting there right now. Don't you feel like a desire welling up in you to want to honor God with your life? I mean, as we talk about working out your salvation, don't you want to do that? Don't you wish that you could do a better job of it? I mean, that's God right now working in you. That's what Paul says. It's God who's at work in you to will and to work. When you want to do the right thing, it's because God is working in you. And Paul's just saying, work that out. If God's put a desire in you, he's also, he has put a desire in you, and he's also given you the power to live in the way that makes him happy. And so we see here that uh, this is how we work out the complaining heart. It's by understanding our salvation. It's by understanding that God doesn't just work for us, but he works in us. And that's what helps us work out the complaining in our hearts. When we understand the salvation of God, when we understand what he's done for us, we understand the lengths that he went for us. Hard to complain. It's hard to complain. And so if you're feeling that pull to continue to, 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 to wallow in complaining, sometimes, like I just think about this, bring your salvation into the room. Okay? Imagine yourself sitting there with all your complaining and imagine Jesus just walking in, not like ready to beat you over the head because you're complaining because that's not how God is. But walking into the room and saying, gosh, don't you remember? Like, I died for you. I lived for you. I love you. You're my brother or my sister. And it is my joy to be in a relationship with you. I know things are difficult. I know that you're going through a mess in this life. I know that relationships can be hard. But I'm with you. I'm with you. When we preach that gospel to ourselves... That drives out the complaining heart. That works out the complaining heart, and it works in that heart of gratitude, that heart of thankfulness, that heart of happiness, really. Because when we do that, we get happy. You know, have you ever thought about that? When you have that experience where you really ought to be complaining, but for some reason you're not? <laughs> I mean, that makes me happy. It's like, wow, like I, I did it right. Hey, you know, that's exciting. <laughs> and so this then brings us uh, to point three. And we've seen working out in point two. Point three is now, this turns into relationships that bring happiness and not complaint. Relationships that bring happiness 
not complaint. This is verses 17 and 18. This gets kind of interesting here. Paul in verse 17 calls himself a drink offering. Now, drink offerings were associated with joy. Okay, They were cups or bottles of wine that were poured out when you made a burnt offering in the Old Testament. Okay? The burnt offerings were associated with consecration. You can read about this in Numbers chapter 28 if you want to look it up. So if you made a burnt offering, you were devoting yourself to God. You were consecrating yourself, saying, God, I'm going to live for you. Everything I have is yours. All that I am is yours. I'm going to serve you with everything I have. With all my heart, I want to honor you. A drink offering would be added to that as a way of saying, and I'm really happy about that. Okay, drink offerings were a way of saying, God, I am delighted to offer myself to you. It's like saying, hey, God, I'm devoting myself to you, and let's drink to that. Okay, it's like having a drink, saying, God, let's raise our glasses. I'm devoting myself to you. Cheers. And so what's Paul saying here? He calls himself the drink offering, and, he's, and the Philippians are the burnt offering. Okay? See what he says? He says in verse 17, um, I'm going to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. Okay, so it's the Philippians' life of faithfulness. It's their faith in Jesus and the lives that they're living. Okay, they are being devoted to the Lord. Right? They're living out the gospel, as Paul's already said. His own faith has already encouraged them to some degree to keep on that. You know, it's interesting, in this, in this letter, Paul is always saying, abound still more and more, as you have obeyed, verse 12. So they're, they're doing a good job. Okay? And so what Paul is saying here is that the Philippians are the consecration offering. They're the burnt offering. And Paul is saying, if my trial works out to where I'm having to die, if I have to give my life because of uh, because of where I am in this trial that's coming up uh, with me before Caesar, then I am going to see my life as simply, or my death, as simply the drink offering that goes along with your lives of devotion. Now, what do we get out of this? How do we apply that? I think what Paul is saying here is that when he and the Philippians are together sacrificing and working out their salvation, it joins them together. It joins them together. Suffering together brings mutual support. It brings mutual encouragement. And that makes us happy. And so in the midst of your suffering, you can have relationships that bring you happiness, not complaint. If you can see your suffering and the suffering of others in your family, in the church, your neighbors, as you join together with other people who are suffering, you end up suffering together. And what that does is you encourage each other. It brings you together. It binds you together. So that in a sense, you're both offering yourselves to the Lord together. <laughs> and that makes, that brings joy. That brings happiness in the midst. It makes you happy. And it helps you to rethink your relationships. Right? Instead of complaining about other people, maybe there's a way that you can enter into their suffering. If they're suffering, if they are dealing with something that's broken or twisted in their lives, maybe instead of complaining about them, you can think through ways that you can offer yourself for them in service. You can serve them. 
And so Paul, I mean, this is one of these things where Paul is just saying, he's not really telling us to do this. He's just saying this is what he's doing. You know, and it's one of these things where Paul's not necessarily saying, here's how to be happy. Paul just is happy. And as we get to read that this is in Paul's heart, as Paul's heart comes to the surface, as his deep-seated joy erupts in happiness for him, we get a chance to say, do we want this? Do we want to leave that road of complaining and take on this road um, and take on this road where as we look to serve in our relationships, as we look to work out our salvation and join with people who are suffering instead of complaining about them, that's Paul's invitation. And what's glorious about this is that this is what brings me to the foot of the cross. Because the minute you talk about two people suffering and how it joins them together, I think about Jesus. Right? The reason that Paul can see his suffering as him joining with the suffering of the Philippians is because both of them have been united to the one who has suffered for the world. Okay, It's the suffering of Jesus that gives meaning to our suffering. And what's mystical, magical, I don't know how to, I mean, what's, Mind-blowing for me is that that means that the times that we suffer, we're not just joining with each other, but we're actually joining with the sufferings of Christ. We experience a little bit of what he experienced when he offered himself for us. It doesn't mean that we, sit, we take part in the atonement or, or what he did for us, but it means that we understand him better and we're united more to him. Paul will talk about wanting to know Jesus and the power of his sufferings so that he can understand Jesus' resurrection all the more. And so this is an invitation that brings us, it brings us to the cross. And um, I want to close by telling you this one story. You know, we were on vacation up in Sacramento uh, this last week. And uh, on our vacation, we spent some time at a river near Sacramento. And this is a great place. Uh, there are places to swim. There are great rocks to jump off of if you're, you know, seven or eight. And great rocks to jump off of if you're old enough to be crazy. Um, and uh, and they had some, there were some white water rapids, too. And some of the rapids were real tame. You know, the kind of rapids where you could float down on an inner tube and be, you know, pretty safe. But there was this one rapids, this one place that uh, was pretty crazy because it was a lot faster it was a lot more jagged in terms of rocks, but the worst part was that it, was, it, was, it moved and in its course, it turned a corner and it ran right up against these two big rocks. Okay, like the water just pummeled this one rock and then it moved on another 10 feet and it pummeled a second rock. And so, you know, those were obviously off limits. And so we were having fun going down the tame rapids. Jamie, Nathan, and I were in our inner tubes going down. And um, at one point, Jamie didn't get out of the current quickly enough. And so... She wasn't, because what would happen, you come through the rapids and you get into one of the eddies on either side. You know, the, the, the stream keeps going into the dangerous rapids, but Jamie didn't get out of it fast enough. And so she's like, Daddy, um, I'm going down. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and we had walked across the place where she was coming the day before. And so I said, you know what, okay, Jamie, you're cutting to a place where you're going to be able to stand up. And so just make sure you get off your raft, stand up, and then you know, walk over to the side like we did yesterday. And so in the meantime, I'm hurrying to get over there as well, right? Because, I mean, yeah, because these rapids are there. And so by the time I got to her, her feet were already sliding. Okay, the rocks underneath her feet, the big stones were sliding. And then I, ha I, had, a, I had my hand on her, but then I realized the current was actually a lot faster than the day before even. The water level had, ri had, ri had risen, and so the current was moving, and pretty soon I was starting to slide. And... 
it took about five or six seconds, and we were both shot down these rapids that were just, I mean, they were incredibly dangerous. And so down we go, and we weren't on our inner tubes. We were hanging onto our inner tubes because we were standing up trying to get out of the current. Okay, and so we got kind of, we got swooshed down this river, and we're going down sort of, I've got one arm in, in my inner tube and my other arm around Jamie and her inner tube, right? And there we go, and I'm, I'm freaking out because I just don't know what's going to happen. Now, the fact that I'm standing here and Jamie's up there <laughs> sort of relieves some of the tension of the story. Um, we did make it through, but let me tell you, until we got past those two rocks, and like, I was really trying hard not to panic. You know, I don't know if you've been in that situation either personally or especially when you have a child, you know, where you're trying to figure out how are you going to get, like, how are you going to get through this? Like, this isn't, this isn't playtime, you know. Um, I just, I was scared for both of us, and I knew I needed to get my feet on those rocks. We had shoes on, you know, shoes and socks. And so I knew that if I could just get my feet to plant on those rocks, then that was really our hope because then we get thrown in, but I could absorb the shock and push ourselves off. Um, and uh, you absorb the blow and then push ourselves away. Now, I mean, other than a couple of nice gashes I have on my left leg, we made it through. I got my feet on the rocks, pushed off, pushed us past the second rock, and God was kind. <laughs> God was very kind to us. Um, and, uh, and then I started fearing, what am I going to tell Lainey? And, you know, she's going to kill me and all that kind of stuff. But um, so afterwards, after we'd gotten on the shore of the river, I, I remember I asked Jamie, I was like, so, Jamie, uh, were, were you freaked out, you know? Like, what was that like for you? And, and she said, you know what she said? She said, well, not really, um, because you were there. And I'm thinking, wow, boy, talk about misplaced trust there. <laughs> or talk about trust that's mixed with illusion, you know. Um, but it was interesting. Like, she had faith in me. You know, for her, she was convinced that she was safe because I would see her through it. You know, and gosh, if that doesn't bring you to the cross, I don't know, I don't know what could. You know, I mean, that's exactly a picture of our faith in Jesus. You know, our faith is even more secure in Jesus. You know, Jamie's faith in me was, you know, plagued with all kinds of difficulties because of who I am. But when you believe in Jesus, you're even more secure, more safe because he's actually gone down the rapids before us. And he made it through. The dangers of life that you live, he has lived. What you're going through right now, he is tempted in all things, just like we are, and yet he made it through to the point of being executed. I mean, that's the difference. You know, Jesus was forced onto the rocks, and he didn't just put his feet on the rocks, but he put his feet, his hands, his side, he put his whole life on the rocks for us. And it didn't go well for him. It didn't go well for him. He was crucified. And so, but because he was raised from the dead, he brings hope in the midst of our rapids, in the midst of the dangers in our lives. And so he comes to us in our sufferings. In our hard times, he's there. We don't hit the rocks because he hit the rocks. That's good news. That's good news that God takes the victory of Jesus and he works it into us. He works the victory of Jesus into us so that we can work it out.
in lives that aren't characterized by complaining, but lives that are filled with love and service to others. Do you know him? Do you know Jesus? I mean, this is his offer. He's offer. He says, I died for you and for your sins. Whatever you've done, whatever you're going through, I will come and I will be near you. I will be with you. I'll be in you to get you through anything that life throws your way. You can receive him just by trusting in him, confessing your sins and saying, Jesus, I'm going to live for you. I'm going to devote my life to you. I hope you're ready to make that commitment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. (laughs) We thank you, Jesus. Thank you for coming to us in our terror, for coming to us in our darkness when there is nothing that we can do, when we're just holding on. Father, for people who are here and who are going down the rapids alone, please show them and help them to experience the comfort of knowing that you are with them. Help them to come to Jesus so that they can sense his presence and find that they're not alone anymore. Draw all of us, God, into a greater sense of our, under- of our salvation so that we can work the complaining out of us and work your salvation more and more into us so that would be the characteristic of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.